Welcome to the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations Events Podcast, where we bring you the audio from our public programs, featuring in-depth analysis of topics on China from scholars, journalists, authors, and policymakers. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org. Hello and welcome everyone to the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations event this evening entitled Ping Pong Diplomacy, U.S.-China Exchange Then and Now. As you can tell from tonight's registration and from the event flyer, this is going to be a great conversation where we reflect on kind of the past, think about the present, and also what can we in some ways look forward to in the future? How can we shape these bilateral relations between the U.S. and China? Tonight's program is only an hour, so of course we cannot cover everything, this extensive history of the U.S.-China relationship, um, but we will try to hit some key points and hopefully have a moment of enlightenment, reflection, and also a moment of encouragement as we think about moving forward. My name is Keisha Brown. I'm an assistant professor of history at Tennessee State University, and I'm excited to welcome our two uh, panelists for this evening. Just to give you a heads up, this evening is just one hour, so the first uh, 20 to 25 minutes um, will be dedicated to our panelists um, answering some questions, having a conversation, if you will, about the U.S.-China relationship. And then we'll move into some Q&A from the audience, including some pre-submitted questions. As the webinar is in going on, as we're going through some questions, if there's a comment or, or something that strikes your fancy, please feel free to put your questions in the Q&A um, so that we can also be able to answer your question and integrate it into the event Q&A at the end. Without further ado, I'd like to introduce our two panelists tonight. First, we have Pete Millwood, who is a postdoctoral fellow in the Society of Fellows in the Humanities at the University of Hong Kong. His first book, Improbable Diplomats, How Ping Pong Players, Musicians, and Scientists Remade U.S.-China Relations, will be published by Cambridge University Press in 2022. Dr. Millwood received his PhD in history from Oxford, and then held postdoctoral fellowships at Tsinghua and Oxford Universities and the London School of Economics. While working on his doctorate, his research was supported by Peking University and the Library of Congress. His writing has appeared in the Washington Post, History Today, and the South China Morning Post, as well as in numerous academic journals. Our second panelist is Jing Su who is a John M. Schiff Professor of East Asian Languages and Literatures and Comparative Literature at Yale University. A 2016 Guggenheim Fellow, Dr. Sue specializes in modern Chinese studies. Her research spans literature and culture, science and technology, nationalism, diaspora and migration, global security and human rights in Asia. She teaches graduate seminars on sympathy, world Sinophone literature, cultural conflicts, and human rights in contemporary China and Asia. Dr. Sue has been a fellow at the Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Study at Harvard University, the Center for Advanced Study in the Behavioral Sciences at Stanford, and the Institute for Advanced Studies at Princeton. Her new book, Kingdom of Characters, The Language Revolution That Made China Modern, was published in January 22. She received her bachelor's and master's degrees from the University of California, Berkeley, and her doctorate from Harvard. So welcome to both of you this evening. Thank you, Keisha. It's great to be here. Absolutely. So as we saw from the event flyer, it's about ping pong diplomacy from then until now. And we wanna get into conversations about what is ping pong diplomacy? How do we get here? So my first question to the panelists is, was ping pong diplomacy the first exchange or people to people contact between the PRC and the United States? How did ping pong diplomacy fit into the PRC or the People's Republic of China's broader approach to cultural exchanges with the outside world? Pete, you want to get the rolling? Sure, sure. I'd like to say a couple of things. Um, so no, it's not, the, it's not the first visit in the PRC period. Americans had visited, even lived in the PRC um, before 1971, Sidney Rittenberg had achieved political influence during the Cultural Revolution, but then been imprisoned. He was a leftist radical, a Maoist, and there were many other, or a significant number of other radicals, including many black radicals, who 
who had visited or spent time in the PRC before 1971. This had been prohibited by the US government, however, and many of these individuals, such as the black journalist William Worthy, had lost his passport as, or had his passport invalidated as a result of traveling to the PRC. The ping pong visit is sometimes, the first ping pong visit is sometimes thought of as the first delegation of Americans to the PRC. But even this is not quite correct. There was a group of visitors that traveled in 1957 following the Moscow Youth Festival. About 40 American young people visited China. And again, some of them had their passports invalidated by US government. Others got in trouble with their parents who, who wrote letters to them begging them not to go. So what's different about ping pong then? I think something that's different is that it was endorsed by both governments. So the US government also endorsed this visit rather than invalidating their, their passports. Nixon welcomed the ping pong players back to the United States. And also from the Chinese perspective, it was aimed as a signal at the US government, at the American broader public, rather than trying to cultivate leftist radicals. Thank I think you. Um, actually follow up. Well, on what Pete said, I think there's a lot of, when we look at ping pong diplomacy, I think we don't idealize it. Such a great spontaneous meeting of minds during the Cold War. And we think it's, you know, the story is that there was a world tennis, um, table tennis championships in Nagoya. Um, but there was a Chinese team there, there's a US team there. The American player, Glenn Cowan, happened to hop on the wrong bus, somehow miss his own, it was a Chinese bus. And lo and behold, Zhuang Zedong, one of the sort of the, the preeminent player, a Chinese player, then exchanged a gift, gave him a gift of embroidery. And then Cowan the next day gave him back a t-shirt. And that is kind of the people-to-people -people diplomacy that then led to the thaw between <laughs> the US and China. And I think we look back on this with a certain nostalgia. We like to think of it as having happened that way, precisely because we haven't been at that high point, perhaps never since. And it's important to remember that there, what's most important, what enabled Piedmont diplomacy to happen is not a serendipity of, you know, just people face-to-face -face diplomacy accidental. It's really a concerted effort that happened months in advance, um, even years, and you know, Nixon wrote an uh, uh, article in Foreign Affairs, I think in 1969, Pete, you know, recall this? 67, or, maybe the Foreign Affairs article. Where he actually, that was being, you know, improving relations with China, was going to be one of his main agenda. So he had been thinking about this for a while. And the Chinese too. I mean, there's a happy meeting of agendas rather than minds, because you have the time where China was becoming more and more nervous about the Soviets. Um, uh, the Soviets even asked Americans, sounded out how they would feel if Soviets attacked uh, one of China's nuclear facilities. Um, so both countries have been looking for a way primarily, primarily to counter basically Soviet influence. So it just so happens that even though China and the Soviet, Chinese and the Soviets were on good relations, certainly through the 50s, um, but it gradually kind of fell apart, culminating the split in 1960. So what really enabled it to happen is really this coincidence that both countries had an interest, or I should rather say both leaders um, had an interest because certainly it was as dangerous for Mao to show an open support for uh, renewing relations with the U.S. Um, in terms of his radical audience at home as it was for Nixon, for his fellow Republicans uh, who would have crucified him um, for even thinking of such a thing. So, you know, we, we have to think about this as not a kind of like a, like a, like a, like a, a miracle moment but it's really a kind of very strategic state diplomacy that already had been in motion. Yes, I, I definitely agree with, with um, that point. And I think that now as historians, we have a lot of the evidence from that period. And at the time, of course, it would have been very surprising for this moment to happen. But now, for example, we have the Chinese government evidence that shows that the decision by the Chinese ping pong team to be in Japan, to be in Nagoya at the World Championships was something that had the very highest approval that Mao was personally involved in, in deciding. The Zhang Zedong Cohen interaction might have been spontaneous then, but the political context in which this happened, as, as Jing said, was very much, uh, very much planned on the Chinese side. On the American side, I think maybe the ping pong moment was, was a bit more of a surprise. Um, this wasn't coordinated by the US government, but the reaction of Nixon and of the US government, and as well the Chinese decision to engage with the Americans at the World Championship very much happened in this context in which there had been these back channels and this government messaging um, from the US and from the Chinese to each other 
of their interests in reproachment. And I always rather liked what Kissinger said about this, is that the whole, you know, Zhuang Zedong gifting, you know, Cowan this, this t-shirt, he said, oh, or this embroidery, he said, that was not coincidental, and that the Chinese are very adept at making something staged look completely spontaneous, right? And we have to remember also, this is not a good time. I mean, ping pong players in China have been persecuted, several committed suicide uh, during the Cultural Revolution. And, you know, we know also from Chinese sources that Zhuang Zedong originally did not want to go. Right, they, mm -hmm. actually, his team actually was was wanting to kind of bake off, um, but then Mao gave the okay, and then everything was kind of set in motion. But we also know that Piedmont diplomacy have been practiced for a little bit. I think in the '60s, we this China has held several of these um, the demonstration games and tours in places in Africa and other places in Asia. And I think one thing. I uh, thank you both for your remarks. And I think one thing that you uh, both spoke of is the different risks that were involved, whether it's at the individual level, what was at stake for an individual um, who were involved in some of these moments, but also what was um, at risk or was at stake um, for also at the state level as well. And so I guess my kind of follow-up question is um, what can, and how do they kind of think about moving beyond the risk to what pushed it from risk to kind of commitment where they were dedicated to making this happen with their own individual way or at the state level, like what really pushed it? What do you think was really kind of impetus behind some of those um, pushing beyond the risk that what was saved to what they thought could be something else on the other side? Is that too heavy? Uh, should, I, should I take it, take it first? No, well, I think, Keisha, this was different. It was always hoped. I think that once you actually get to the actual event itself, the ping pong diplomacy, it was basically just a way of formalizing what both countries were willing to commit to. They wanted this to happen. You know, unlike now, when we, when we try to think about, is there going to be another ping pong moment? Is there going to be another Kissinger who, who can somehow bridge the two sides and read both sides as well? It's hard to do because, as I said earlier, the conditions were already aligned, right? That there, there are the people who are important on the ground, um, but it's also, uh, that's because it's, it's, it's important because it was a moment where statecraft needed to appear apolitical, right? In order to, you talk about two countries that hadn't been in touch since the 50s. You know, two countries that have been isolated from each other for so long that they actually didn't even know how to communicate. We know that even after, right, even after Ping Pong Nagoya, that both sides were kind of sending these mixed signals, these wrong messages. And Americans I didn't understand why Mao was still calling U.S. imperialism and, you know, down with the running dogs. Um, and, you know, and, and the U.S. side didn't quite understand that, you know, Mao's meetings with Edgar Snow, one of the few foreigners, few Westerners who had his ear, um, were actually trying to signal to the United States that the Americans, that he was ready to, you know, not extend an olive branch, that he was certainly open to a channel being open. I would definitely agree with that. And I think in the Chinese context, the moment of ping pong diplomacy fits into these many messages, as Jim was saying, that the Chinese had sought to send the United States, some at the very highest level through, uh, through, heads of, through other heads of state, for example, but others at different levels, like the Edgar Snow message, but then also this ping pong message. And this makes sense in the context of PRC history in this point in time, when Chinese diplomacy with the outside world was often conducted through contacts with the populations of other countries. So I think ping pong diplomacy makes sense in, in that context. The high level back channels had hit a bit of a deadlock in 1970 and 1971. So I think Mao and Zhou and Lai also saw ping pong as a, as a slightly different approach that might be able to break, break the ice with the American people and to, to push the American government to some of the compromises that, uh, that the Chinese side was seeking, particularly on, on Taiwan. But I certainly think, as Jing has said, in a number of different ways, that this is wrapped up in the overall approach of the Chinese government to the United States, both the United States government and US society at this moment in time. And actually, I would love to hear, Pete, I would love to know more about what you found out be the exchanges between musicians and maybe even artists, because certainly at the time, you know, we know that since 1966, and um, thanks to the National Committee on US-China relations, that there had always been a kind of a trickle a very faint pulse, I would say, 
of you know scholarly exchanges between the two countries and certainly in um 70 in early 70s to you know the end of the revolution 78 and then early 80s there were these scientists too who were sent to china um to advise them on the computing program how they were building up on um, these machines and kind of offering um kind of a, actually had, they were the first ones who had the first glimpse into the state of science and technology in china which was quite dire uh, you have computer parts that were measured by hand. Um, you have people waiting in line, like for a telephone booth, waiting to use a, a, a machine, you know, with with their with their punch tape ready um, to you know instruct uh, to put in the programming. So it was a very it was and you invariably you see all these foreigners who are in the country, they were moved, they were moved by the amount of energy diligence and sincerity of these Chinese people, scientists, academics that they met. They were astounded by the conditions and how much headwind they had before them. And so, you know, these, I think there are these small sort of these very important glimpses, but there was never, you know, I would say, and the I would I, actually is a question that I've had, which is, you know, that in China at the time, whether you're interacting with people in the sciences, in the in sports and whatnot, these were all very orchestrated, right? Someone knows these all had layers of approval. So China actually kind of had a concerted plan with regard to how to engage the United States again, right? What it wanted from this political friendship what it hoped to accomplish. And I have to say it ended up quite different. And actually you and I probably would not be surprised since we've seen the documents on this, that it was never meant to be that China would become like the United States. You know, this, this disillusionment that we're currently undergoing in this country, we're, we're kind of sobering up as though we've been, we've been lied to and deceived. Um, you know, I think the Chinese were always very clear that their goal, and especially after the lesson they learned from the Soviet Union, the fallout, that their goal was self-reliance and that whatever they had to do for that, even means to, you know, in some ways, as I say in the Chinese phrase, to live under someone else's eaves, you know, to make themselves smaller in order to learn and be, and with great humility, if that's a path that they're willing to do it. Absolutely. And I think so we see this through the scientific exchanges that happen in, in Mao's lifetime up until his death in 76, but even perhaps a little bit later in the 1970s too. When Americans came to, when the first American scientists went to China and when Chinese scientists went to the United States, these were not um, talked about on the Chinese side as learning from these advanced Americans um, and opportunities to sort of access American technology. Instead, they were positioned as mutual exchanges of equal worth. That is to say, that the Chinese side would try to, would showcase its scientific advances and in turn would respectfully learn from the American side. We know about some of these things that were, that were still influential today, perhaps like acupuncture, but there were many areas in Chinese science that American scientists were genuinely interested in. For example, pest control without the use of uh, pesticides and chemicals or seismology. Uh, that was another area that American scientists were genuinely interested in. And American scientists went to China to learn about what the Chinese achieved in the two decades since the founding of the PRC in 1949. And they listened carefully when Chinese came to the United States and talked about their advances. Even if we also know from both the Chinese and American side, that the Chinese, particularly Chinese scientists were very interested in what Americans talked about in terms of their own advances, in terms of their own science and technology. And the scientists themselves paid great attention to what Americans knew at this point in time too. And the thing is like the Chinese really did their homework. In some ways, you know, China knows so much more about the United States than the reverse. And I remember there were these uh, scientists who went there and the Chinese, and they were telling the Chinese about their research and so forth, their publications. The Chinese said, yeah, 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 we read all that. But we're interested in things that you haven't published. Like, what are you working on now? So the fact that yeah, there's this during period of closure where the idea of reading a Western novel would have been a crime, but then the scientists had access to Western scientific journals, the latest issue. I mean, they were very much um, well-educated in what United States was doing. But that kind of brings us to the question, what is so particular about sports? You know, this going back, like, you know, there are different ways in which the two countries are kind of engaging, testing each other out, sizing each other up. But what is so particular about sports? 
And obviously this is something that I thought a lot about since, since the Winter Olympics in Beijing. And it's really an arena. I think it's really good. It's very few, there are very few um, occasions, maybe no other, where you have the entire world coming together, different countries come together, playing more or less by the same rules. And so this kind of, this, this, this stage, I think for China in particular has always had a very, um, a very important amplification and great significance, right? It's to be part of the uh, Olympics or sports. It's really to be recognized as an equal, right? On the world stage and competing with other nations. You know, George Orwell had this famous phrase, which is, um, you know, Olympics or sports is like war, just without the shooting. And, you know, one could say Clausewitz, then we can say that, you know, sports is a continuation of war via other means. And I think these are all very true, that there's something about sports, right? The ping pong, the, even though ping pong was not really recognized as an Olympic sport until later, but certainly this idea of, I mean, what is it, Pete? Like, you know, is it engaging something completely different? Is it the, the competitiveness, you know, the, the distraction from politics, but kind of embodied in individuals? Is it kind of that diversion from state, right? from ideology, but kind of like individuals' contribution and their aptitude and their talent. It's kind of like state, you know, kind of like all national pride being focused on a person, an athlete that we can relate to. Yes, I think those, it's, it's all of those things, certainly. Um, I think ping pong diplomacy takes place in this context in which sports have been highly politicized, both domestically, but also in, the, in China's foreign relations um, during the Mao period. And something that was mentioned many times in the, both of the ping pong visits was this Chinese saying, uh, friendship first, competition second. And I think that's an important idea about the political role of sports for the Chinese state. But even as we recognize the importance of friendship first, competition second, it was also the case that Zhou Enlai and the Chinese uh, sports ministry and those involved in Chinese sports um, were heavily involved in making sure that the Chinese were also highly competitive in these sports that they were going to be involved in. It was a lot easier to have friendship first, competition second, when you were um, clearly the match or perhaps superior of your opponent, as was the case in ping pong. Now, China was also involved in other forms of sports diplomacy, including with the United States after 1971 and 1972, in which China was, was less able. So it's not to say that China only engaged in sports diplomacy when it was able to win, but I don't think it would be accurate to say that China didn't care about all the things you just said, Jane, in terms of representing um, their, their prowess and, and their national pride. I, I think also... No, I always love just a footnote to what you're saying. I love the fact that, you know, friendship first, competition second meant that the Chinese players, the Chinese athletes would even throw a game to make their opponents look good. And I think you're right. Like, I think the better the Chinese are at that particular event, like ping pong, the more, the more sincerity and friendship it actually means that they're willing to, you know, throw this game for you. So there, that's a particular kind of gesture polytest that I think it's often one of the things that's overlooked, the significance of which is overlooked. And if I can uh, ask another question, follow up on this, uh, I hate to interject, but I think this is kind of a good point to shift and think about um, kind of post this ping pong moment and building upon the conversation of the use of friendship as this kind of connective bridge where on both sides, um, both states had um, different organizations um, that used the language of friendship in their titles, whether it was US China People's Friendship Association in the US or whether it was different um, bureaus in the, the Chinese Communist Party that had that language of friendship within it as a means of engaging with foreigners. And so thinking about the use of friendship as a means of access, how to gain access to these countries. And so maybe we can think about how this uh, idea of friendship and access and opening up um, in some ways shifted or in some ways continued to shape U.S. China relations um, post the kind of historic ping pong diplomacy in the 1970s, not just in uh, sports, but also maybe in other ways. So maybe we can talk more about how we see this happening throughout the 80s and, and continuing on uh, into possibly uh, kind of contemporary moments of, of exchanges. So who would like to go first? Pete, do you want to take this first or? Maybe I'd say a couple of things, but, but not too much actually on, on this one, perhaps. I think Friendship has come to mean different things in the PRC foreign relations context, in, at least in the Cold War era. I think friendship initially meant people that were friendly to the domestic political ideology of the Mao regime. So friends of the Chinese revolution were those that supported 
uh, Maoism as an ideology and were prepared to support this in a range of different ways, all the way from going to move to China and, and living in China and supporting the revolution in that way, to uh, integrating some of Mao's thoughts into their own political ideology back in the United States or in many different countries. And I think that form of friendship continued to be true into the 1970s. Most of the Chinese state's efforts to build friendship broadly conceived with the United States in this period were less political. There were things like these ping pong visits and the national committees, uh, extensive cultural exchanges with China in this period, which were not as politically inflected or at least inflected in terms of Maoism and ideology. But there remained a separate track and the US-China People's Friendship Association was one of the leading organizations in this, which continued to attract people who were interested, perhaps not in full-blown Maoism, but were interested in the political ideas of Maoist China and continued to find inspiration in, in those ideas. And I think the Chinese state continued to mobilize Americans as well as foreigners in other countries through the appeal of Maoist ideology and the example of the Chinese Revolution. And that lingered on perhaps into the 1980s, but it dissipated, particularly after 1979, at which point many leftists in America and elsewhere in the world rejected the reality of, um, of Chinese socialism as it was built under Deng Xiaoping. I would say, Keisha, in order to answer that question, can't we be friends again? I think one has to recognize how different a set of circumstances we find ourselves now than in the 1970s. First of all, we, the US and China know each other so much better, right? It is not like two decades of isolation where both sides were overcome with curiosity. There's not much curiosity right now. And I like to say that the two sides have been dating for a few decades and the relationship has not gone well um, for the sake of the rest of the world. I hope there is a way to mediate or to at least find a kind of strategic or acceptable accommodation. Um, also, China is in a very different place. China doesn't necessarily feel that it has much to learn from the West. If anything, the last four or five years has seen examples that, um, that is, it's horrifying to the Chinese. Um, they see certain chaos, they see political chaos, um, they see kind of almost anarchistic individualism. This is the way they see it. And they, when they see even how the two countries handle pandemic differently, even though China now has enormous challenges with the strategy, is that when they see the numbers in the United States, you know, last year, this time, they were horrified. They were horrified. So, you know, the, the two are really a very different place. And it's hard to try to reintroduce a kind of curiosity. And I think I'm actually now in some ways I'm having, I'm thinking of Ian Johnson's question. It's like, should we continue to do this? Can we do more of this? This kind of people to people interaction. I think it's harder. In fact, you know, if you talk to Washington people, you know that there's also this sense that US might've been talking to the wrong kind of, you know, Chinese informants. That we've been, you know, more, we, our ears have been more open to dissidents who disagree with Chinese politics and um, the, the state structure and power um, because they think more like us. So we've been more susceptible to what they're saying, except these people are not necessarily telling us how China is really working from the inside. There's that sense, right? So, and I think there's also the idea that there's not much we can, we have to lure China back to the table. So there's, there's the circumstance and position that's significantly different where China's not asking. I think that is a very palpable change when we talk about sports. I think the difference between, let's say, if you think about 2008, the first Olympics that China hosted in 2022, this past February. And when you're there in the stadium, you very much are aware of the dramatic change in tone, right? 2008, China wanted to tell you everything. Do you want to tell the world everything about itself? It was eager at voluntary groups going around correcting all the wrong spelling of English signs so that the foreigners wouldn't feel disoriented when they come to visit Beijing. 2022, well, also because COVID, there's barely any foreigners. You know, those who went to report were based on the foreign media bubble. You still have the sense that China, you know, wanted to be a great host, but it's not eager. And there's a distinct message that they were going to go on with the games the way they were, despite the calls for boycott. And that, and I think that's kind of a messaging uh, for the larger trend here, which is China is going to go its own way, and 
if the world comes along with it, it is happy for him to, to have that company to try to work together. But if the United States is, on our is not on board, China is gonna go on regardless. So that's kind of a dramatic attitude change. And so what will be the answer to that? I think instead of curiosity and friendship, I think basically we have a bit of homework to do. That one has to think about really understanding and getting to know and learning about China's past and its motivation throughout the 20th century with as much diligence and seriousness as they studied the United States. I think that's the only way that we can come up with, I think, sustainable strategies, right? Not just to serve a, a two-year goal, a five-year goal, but really about a power that we're gonna, that the United States will have to coexist with for the foreseeable decades. I think that's, uh, those are all very thoughtful points. I think a, another answer to Ian Johnson's question that, that builds on what Jing was saying was that I think small steps like this could be an opportunity to, to learn about this much more self-confident China and to give Americans a better representation of China um, as it is today than perhaps they have from that period, that earlier period that I think was very well symbolized in the 2008 Olympics. And I think we might look to this ping pong example as a way of doing so. The second leg that we're partially commemorating today that happened 50 years, uh, 50 years ago, the visit by the Chinese team to the United States included uh, a somewhat varnished, but not wholly varnished image of the United States. And there were protests during the tour. The Chinese team were protested by those that opposed them because of, uh, because of communism and for a range of other reasons. And the Chinese visitors were sometimes alarmed by these protests, but the National Committee and others that were involved in hosting the visit said that, you know, in the United States, people enjoy the right to protest. And if the games are, uh, if their exhibition games are disrupted by these political protests, then that, that's permitted, albeit within, within bounds. And I think maybe small steps like the ping pong visits might be useful today to give both sides a more accurate representation of how they each feel about each other. I suspect that there are many in both China and the United States who actually do have still strong positive feelings or at least some positive feelings towards the other side and moments of people to people exchange and cultural exchange could be a way of expressing this. I certainly think that uh, the Chinese students and Chinese people that I know still do have many positive feelings towards American society and many Americans, even if they have decidedly mixed feelings about US foreign policy and the US government. So I think these kind of moments, if we don't assume that something like a people to people exchange will necessarily be entirely harmonious, can be important exercises in learning about a confident China and a confident United States. And actually, the, the one more thing I would add to that, Keisha and Pete, is that it is, and I don't know, some people don't agree with it. It is so important for us to distinguish between the Chinese state and the Chinese people. And I think a lot of times that is elided, and we certainly wouldn't accept someone eliding, you know, American government with the American people. So I think that's absolutely critical to keep in mind, as Pete said, as we keep these people to people relations and to continue a line of communication and exchange. And thank you for making that clear distinction. That's when I think gets lost uh, many times between, you know, the Chinese state and the Chinese people. Uh, and people are assuming that everyone who is in China you know, takes on the views of the, the CCP and that is not, like you said, it's not in some way the same way. That probably possibly stems for a lot of different reasons, um, but thinking about um, what you both said, um, in addition to organizations like the National Committee who has the annual town hall, um, they have other public events to like really educate, the, uh, educate and inform um, those who are kind of experts in this space, but also those who are coming new to the space. Uh, we think about the role of, of education as we see in many cases going to, um, James Bryant question, we see in some ways not only America's, America's perception of China's rooted in brief glimpses of headlines that scream caution and otherness, we can kind of see it on the other side as well. Can we think about how we get beyond these moments of seeing China as this kind of enigma or this kind of monolith? How do we in some ways kind of find ways to push beyond that to really get beyond some of these sensational headlines that really uh, push a particular narrative or agenda? And how can we in some ways find ways to highlight some successful cultural exchange examples 
that are helping Americans to better understand these. So what can we do and how can we uh, reach more people to help them understand and learn, like you said, as you said, how to learn more about study China as rigorously as the Chinese have studied America. How do we get that level of exchange or, or knowledge out there when we see that the opposite is actually happening? I might say uh, a couple of things. I think one thing to say is that in spite of COVID and in spite of the significant political changes in China, there is still a level of cultural exchange and people-to-people exchange happening between China and the United States. The National Committee is still involved in important work, but there are also still a significant number of Americans in China. And there are, particularly in the, in the last year or so, many Chinese students have returned to the United States, even if some have done so with some trepidation because of the COVID situation. So I think some things are, are still going on. I think those are very important. It's very important for both sides to have, to continue to have direct personal experience of the other, the other country through things like cultural and educational exchange. Of course, a lot more can be done and a lot more can be done, particularly once the disruption of COVID subsides in, uh, in both countries. There's talk of returning the Fulbright um, program to China and to Hong Kong. And I think that would be, of course, a very positive step. And I hope that happens in the near future. A small number of American journalists have returned to China. And I think that's an initial positive step. But of course, we need, we need more journalists um, in, more American journalists in China telling, uh, telling their fellow Americans, telling the world um, the, the their stories about, about China and giving a representation of, of that society. And China does continue to take actions against journalists. For example, Peter Hester's departure from China is very disappointing, I think, because these are exactly the sorts of people, I think, that are, um, are most valuable for China and for the United States in giving an accurate, deep understanding of Chinese society. Well, I'm hopeful that he can get back in there, given how popular he is. But I would say that... Um... I think a challenge ahead, it's easy to talk about, we need to learn more about China, right? The way that China has learned about the US. I think it's also how do we, what well, the challenge would be, how do we really learn about a system that is different from ours? Because we really are talking about, it's not a difference of politics or even governance. It's really a difference of a system of systems of values, right? Um, you can talk about a competition of systems, you can call it, call, it, call it negotiation between systems, but it's like, how do we start to wrap our heads around um, you know, this world, the society um, that is as vast and complex as ours, right? But just as we don't have complete purview of what's everything that's going on in society now that makes it complex, um, even less will we have a, a, a guess at what China's really like, especially during this period of COVID isolation and lockdown, where we have so little idea of what goes on in one another's countries um, and create, and in the meanwhile, basically allow these different worldviews to diverge, right? Um, so I think that's kind of a challenge. And I, I like how Pete had, has had very specific outlines and I'm, I'm, I'm made hopeful by him. But I think the, the greater challenge is also for, for Pete and I, how do we teach China? How do we teach the subject of China? I think that's going to be a kind of a, a new, that's going to spark a new set of questions for us academics. And that kind of brings us into a question that was asked by uh, Anna Hall, which states, if you can speak to education exchange, how do you feel the relationship has progressed since 1970s to now? Will we both, meaning the U.S. and China, continue to promote educational exchange or is the emphasis on its importance diminishing? I think education exchange will continue to be important. I think perhaps the volume of Chinese students going to the United States has perhaps plateaued, might begin to decline, but the United States continues to be very attractive to Chinese students in spite of, as we've already talked about, there being significant barriers at the moment, and also in spite of Chinese universities being increasingly attractive to, to Chinese students. Two, in terms of scholarly exchanges, I think the political climate in China makes it a little bit harder for both sides as well. I think Chinese scholars are no longer perhaps um, as keen to go to the United States in terms of building their careers. And I think 
scholars of China in the United States face significant barriers to going to China at the moment, some of which may subside with the end of COVID, but others, others won't. But I think academics, scientists and experts in both countries will fundamentally continue to be interested in interactions with their colleagues throughout the world and therefore in two of the leading academic communities in the world in China and the United States. So I think there will be a fundamental driver of education exchange into the future. And I hope that American scholars, for example, do push hard to get back into China once the COVID disruption has passed. There are significant political barriers to doing so, and there are dangers to some who study contemporary China. And of course, these need to be navigated carefully. But if we look back to the 1970s, say, as we were talking about a few minutes ago, there were significant barriers to American uh, professors, American academics going to China in that period as well. And American scholars worked very hard to do so. And they are thereafter produced important work that helped us gain an understanding of the Chinese system, as, as Jing talks about, um, a, a different Chinese system to now, but a distinct one from the United States. So I think scholars on both sides and students on both sides have an important role to play. And now that it is harder, I think, maybe the duty to do so is even, is even greater. And I think what complicates that picture is, is also the climate for receiving Chinese students. We know that Chinese scholars of Chinese descent have come under scrutiny, um, investigation, the China Initiative, which actually um, established in 2018, but abolished only recently in February. But then now there's also noises being made about reinstituting it. Um, I think that is a very, um, it, it certainly brings to mind the McCarthy era where we had lost Chinese talent, a very notable one who went back and did a lot for China. Um, I think certainly, if you, whatever advance we've made since 1970s education exchange, and I think quite a lot, right? Chinese graduate students um, in the sciences in particular, there's not a single lab you can find in the 90s and 2000s where there isn't like a Chinese graduate student, you know, in the lab. And um, I think that I hope we can keep, I hope we can keep attracting talent from China. There was also for a while, a, a, uh, a lot of noise made about how Chinese students just simply come and then they take everything back to China with them. And there was this report put up on uh, Marco Polo that actually shows it's actually not quite true given their sample size, um, that it actually by and large they stay in the industries here. And so I think a lot of this also has to do with, on the one hand, we have to be a little careful about you know, the kind of hostility that we're also cultivating in this society with regard to Chinese or anyone who looks Chinese. Chinese Americans being the largest group within the Asian American population. Um, I'm not, no, I don't know where, where, where you are, Keisha, exactly, but you know, in New York, you know, just about every day I see some headline of Asian getting beaten up or killed and whatnot. I mean, it is not, it is not a very encouraging term um, of, of events. And that culture, that culture of hostility and xenophobia it's so easy to activate and it could so easily undo decades of work to bridge cultural misunderstanding and cultural difference. And I, I, I worry that it will also take a long time to build back. Yes, I strongly uh, agree with that sentiment. And I think it's very important for Americans to be aware of just how large the Chinese attention to these incidents are. Um, these incidents are far too common and they're and they are very large in the Chinese imagination and Chinese perception of the United States when they're thinking about where to go for undergraduate study or graduate study. And we need to work hard to address that. And things like the China Initiative, the parallel with the 1950s is, is very, very striking. And the, they are almost, they're often almost the same policies that were pursued by the United States in the 1950s, disastrously when it came to the loss of talent of Chinese scientists who were becoming Chinese American scientists in many cases, or even had become Chinese American scientists, were committed to American academia, had been committed to the US war effort in the 1940s, and were driven to communist China, a country that they had, um, they had a political society they had not been born into by misguided US, uh, US policies. And I think the end of the China Initiative is a positive sign, but we need a broader effort to make sure that the contribution of Chinese scientists, whether they're US citizens or not, is recognized in American academia and that the 
role that they play is, is celebrated rather than treated with suspicion. And that there is an understanding of the nature of the transnational scientific collaboration that happens between American academia and foreign academia, including um, Chinese academia, and that institutions like the FBI have a better sense of, of how science works and, and what is and isn't suspicious, because there might be a minority of suspicious activity, but collaboration with scientists back in China is normal for many scientists. It's not um, the it's not grounds for suspicion. Yes, and we should add that this is also a pattern that's very discernible in America's history. If you think about after 9-11, America does not trust people who look like their enemies, even if they've been naturalized as citizen, right? Um, so I think the same is has been happening for the past several years with regard to Chinese Americans. And frankly, I think that they are the ones who will have a great role to play in building back this relationship, in thinking of strategies for a kind of um, accommodation and acceptable coexistence between China and the US. Thank you for your thoughtful responses. And I guess maybe just to follow up uh, uh, before I move on to another uh, pre-submitted question, um, as you mentioned, Jing, uh, about uh, maybe Chinese Americans are thinking about uh, maybe the Chinese diaspora might be useful in rebuilding these relationships. Um, what other, I guess my, I'm thinking of, uh, we kind of have a, uh, and we always like to look to history to say, what can you learn from the past and maybe replicate those models. But I want to ask both of you, kind of stemming from your comment, um, how can we think about uh, building new pathways forward? How can we think about uh, new ways of rebuilding or building new bridges and building new connections beyond the ways which we kind of established, you know, relations before? How can we find new connections where we see there is um, an initiative or uh, an agenda to where both sides, um, whether it's, you know, some uh, entity from the US and some entity in China that wants to build forward? Um, do we have to move beyond um, the kind of established pattern? Do we have to work with a new model or can we find a different road forward? I think with that regard to that, we need to somehow, we need to bridge and we need to bring together our own experts and our different circles conversation between let's say academics, policymakers, journalists, the three that I like to think of that I tend to differentiate by long thinking, medium term thinking, and short term thinking, right? There's a lot, I think it's very important for us to come together and to exchange and to try to stitch to in some ways, fill in and brush in this picture that is China. And I think as for, you know, how we would move forward and um, how we would strategize that, I think it's, for Chinese diaspora, I think a lot of these different, um, uh, for these different groups, it's also important to think about, for us to come together and think about what does China care about? I think it's important for us to look at what issues they're concerned with, how long they've been concerned with them, what is their vision of things, and to find common ground that way. And I know many people have been talking about climate as perhaps one of the few areas in which China is still very much wants to and willing to collaborate. But I also think we need to break that category. You know, climate means many, many things. We need to think about how it's impacting China's creative industry, how people, you know, where their creative energy is going into and coming up with, what kind of solutions do they come up with? How is it different from ours? Again, it's a process of learning about how a different system, a different society might be thinking of a different set of solutions for the future. And I wouldn't say completely different, but kind of different by degree, rather than kind. And I think we have to be able to accept that as opposed to insisting our own kind and our own genre of solutions. Yeah, I would certainly echo those points. I think a, a new old approach might be really thinking about the areas in which each society has outstanding capabilities and outstanding talent that the other side is very conscious of and seeking to encourage the types of exchanges that are already taking place or certainly that were already taking place before, from, uh, before 2020 and reinvigorating those exchanges. And many Americans recognize that China is making uh, rapid progress in certain areas of science. Many Chinese continue to respect American prowess in certain areas of culture, like the film and cinema industry or in sports. And these are the kind of areas where there continues to be interest on both sides and in the other side. And I think exchanges in those areas would be, would be very profitable. 
And just to further ask, because there's a question in the chat from Lisa who says um, something related, but um, just to ask, because uh, uh, she asked another point that we haven't mentioned, which is um, she asked about the Chinese diaspora community in the U.S., but she also asked about the role of American business um, expat community in greater China, um, who's also been instrumental in promoting engagement and mutual understanding. So we can also think about that community and how they can be part of this conversation. Any thoughts? Well, I have to say that that um, that sector or that era conversation is very heated right now. I think a lot of um, pressure on American act, uh, companies and firms, CEOs to essentially make a moral choice, right? To make a politically a moral choice. Um, I have to say also my colleague at Yale who recently came up with a list of, you know, companies that support um, Russia or has investments and, and that has been very impactful. So I think this whole what's this whole phenomenon of companies being the hot seat, of companies having to be responsible actors um, is, is very much unfolding right now. And I actually don't know. I actually that's a very good question, Keisha. It's like what can American companies and entrepreneurs expats do? Well, I think it really depends on what industry and how much stake they have in China. You know, people have talked about how, you know, the, the Women Tennis Association, in some ways, you know, it's, 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 it's very strong stance against China and the Beijing Winter Olympics. Uh, some people say because it did not have that much invested that it could afford to disengage. But then we find out that's actually not the case. So I think there's a lot, of, a lot more that we need to talk about in that area. And I think we should recognize that point that there are institutions, there are companies that have been working hard to find a balance between those two things of taking strong stances uh, that are reflecting of their values as American companies, as American institutions or global institutions, while also continuing to be invested literally and figuratively in the Chinese, uh, in the Chinese space. And I think expats, American companies, um, other foreign companies are good examples of people that uh, are trying to are trying to find the space within that to continue to have a meaningful role in China while also being mindful of the, the new challenges of the recent period. Okay, so we're almost out of time. We have about eight minutes left. So I'm gonna try to hopefully get in oh, with one or two more questions. So my apologies if your question was not asked today, but I do hope that the conversation did stimulate uh, new conversations and new questions. And hopefully part of your question was asked. Um, so there was one question that um, came up uh, in, uh, by Lucy and it kind of nicely dovetailed with Katie's, uh, Katie Scores' question about um, how was this topic thought about discussing China and Lucy he kind of asked this uh, in the chat very specifically about uh, maybe Jean, you could talk about your experience with the Olympics. Um, where is there any sense of sports as a breakthrough as in the 1970s? Did the officials make an effort to use the Olympics as a bridge or were the athletes kept pretty separate from each other with COVID as a useful tool? So maybe thinking about this from uh, kind of the other side as well. So Jing to you and then to Pete. This is a very, <laughs> I feel like this, this is a whole other com a conversation to ask about, you know, what, what, what happened to 2022 Beijing Olympics? Um, I think to put it briefly, that certainly the, I think COVID had a huge impact and one could say that it also very conveniently segregated foreigners from the Chinese. Um, nonetheless, there were people that were, that were helping us, right? That were helping with the event who were locals, actually recruited locally. Um, the, did, is, was it a, I wouldn't say it was a breakthrough event, like in the seventies, it was definitely a turning point, right? A few hours before the opening ceremony, we learned that, um, President Xi Jinping and Putin were going to have this summit. And as speaking just for myself, you certainly feel that there was something going on in the sense that the Olympics was not at the center of the Chinese state's attention the way it was in 2008, even though both were uh, under, uh, basically on Xi Jinping's watch, right? So I think that's, that's a very notable difference. And um, there is a lot brewing. You see the double messaging where, you know, every night after we're done, you know, I go back to the hotel and I will watch the Chinese coverage of the Olympics. And you would think that 
there are two different games being covered if you compare to what was in the Western media and what was in the Chinese media. And I think it's, it, it really reinforces what I said earlier, which is there, there is a kind of divergent path. China is going to go its own way. And it does this almost something hard to, hard to I think, for normal, for the average person to fathom, but with a certain kind of disappointment, it is actually doing this. It actually feels that no matter what it does, China feels no matter what it does, the West is going to bash it one way or the other. They're going to call them miscreants. They're going to call them rogue. They're going to call them, you know, all kinds of things. That, so in some ways, it almost has no point trying to justify or trying to extend gestures, even though those gestures are often met with suspicion, in some cases with good reasons. But the thing is, China certainly feels misunderstood. You know, there has not been a country who tried to integrate with, with the world, who tried to westernize as hard as China. And there hasn't been a country who has helped China as much in that process as the United States. We think of you know, WTO, China's entry into WTO. But of course, I don't say this in the sense that both sides were, 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 were acting altruistically, right? But certainly how history came to be that we are at this present moment where we're in such an awkward and mutually hostile situation it's, it's, it's a disappointing one for those of us who study China our lives, like, like Pete and I. And, you know, we, we are concerned and we hope that there's a way going forward. And maybe the memory of, of Ping Pong is offering a tiny glimpse of hope in terms of that, in that in answer to the first question, I think that this is still thought of as a very much a good news story in China, both the commemorations of the 1971 visit last year for the 50th anniversary of that visit, but then this year as well, presented this visit in, in very positive terms as a touchstone of uh, cooperation and friendliness between the Chinese and American people. And I think maybe building on something that Jing just said, I think it is perhaps a little bit more politicized at the moment. And I think the commemorations in this year and last year compared to perhaps 10 years, 10 years previous have inflected that discussion in a slightly different way, implying that the American people are still still feel very positively towards China, in spite of the US government's approach to China. And often the commemoration of ping pong in the last year or two has implied that if the American government changed its policies towards, uh, towards China, then more moments like this could happen because of the underlying goodwill between, between the two people. Now, we might not agree with the basis for that uh, narrative, but I also think that it offers perhaps some hope in that it gives an indication that the Chinese government re remains committed to people-to-people -people contact and cultural exchange with the outside, and it welcomes engagement to a certain extent, or at least ostensibly, um, into the future. And I think that provides an opportunity for Americans that wish to engage in China to seek moments like this to continue to have a relationship even in spite of the challenges and the barriers of today. And I think the short answer is there's no, there's no silver bullet as there never is. But I think what's a, a one important message and I wouldn't, I, I'm not even sure I call it hopeful, but I think it's important to recognize is that China actually does not want to disengage from the world. China still wants to be part of it. And I think that is a very, that is something that we should really take to heart and to recognize um, without second guessing. But at the same time, how we're supposed to do that at a moment where countries, you know, US, Soviet Union, Japan, or Russia, Japan, China, and others are basically rearming and rethinking. And we're going through another, I think, in the era of serious military buildup while trying to proceed on goodwill. I think it's going to be a tough needle to thread, but I think it's the one that both China and the US would have to do. And with that, uh, I guess we have uh, two minutes left. So with no more questions, because of course we can't answer another question in two minutes. But I want to thank both panelists um, for their insightful um, and honest remarks uh, as it relates to such a heavy and important topic. Um, and I love the fact that both of you at the end kind of uh, brought it back to the idea of kind of hope and not necessarily the doom and gloom that we a lot of times hear, but thinking of not just being hopeful, but ways we can think about this strategically, um, breaking down 
some of the fields and areas we can look at and, and make it more in some ways palatable and more accessible to people as well. Uh, I'd like to thank the National Committee of US-China Relations, um, not only for them hosting this panel tonight, but for their commitment to this relationship uh, from its beginning until now, um, where their work being instrumental in US-China relations, um, whether it's through scholarly exchanges, it's working um, with different individuals in different uh, sectors of, of the US and China spaces, as well as their extensive history of the 50-year relationship um, on that website. So if you want to learn more about it, type in uh, NCUSCR, um, go to their website, and they have a beautiful interactive history that uh, highlights um, the ways in which they have not only been part of this, but also the history itself, in case you want to know more information. So I am uh, extremely honored and thankful that they asked me to uh, host uh, and moderate this evening's panel. And I look forward to you all learning more about this and continuing this conversation moving forward. And hopefully we can think about uh, the idea and role of hope and how we can also be beacons of hope ourselves as we continue to carry the torch and tell the story of US-China relations um, and really expand that conversation as well. With that being said, thank you all so much. And you all have an amazing morning, noon, or night, depending on the world where you are. Thank you so much again, Pete and Jean. And thank you again to the National Committee on U.S. Relations for organizing and hosting tonight's event. Without further ado, goodbye. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org.